This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 343, recording on Thursday, December 12th, 2019. Jeff O'Neill, she's Rebecca Shinsky. We come to you from the internet media property that is bookriot.com. I like how this introduction is just always a surprise now. Yeah. I just don't know what's going to happen in the show opening. <laughs> As the metaphor of coming to you from a URL has become increasingly <laughs> less useful, I've, I'm, I'm vamping on the idea of coming mm-hmm. to you from a website um, for some reason. You know, I, I didn't check with you about this before we started the show, but I think we can make it official. People don't know this. Do you know where I'm going? Oh, yes, yes, I do. It just, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. We're doing more bonus episodes in 2020. Woo! A whole bunch more. We have a plan and everything. Um, it's not. It's going to be almost every week. So we're kind of thinking of it like the the old. Gosh, speaking of increasingly less useful metaphors, the old broadcast TV seasons model, where mm. you do them in the spring and fall. Um, it's kind of going to be like that. Where most weeks in 2020, we're going to do a bonus episode. We're going to take off July and August, some holiday time, one or two here and there. We'll let you know. We've, we're going to do a mix of some of the things we've done before, some book nerd movie clubs. some pre- We're going to do seasonal previews. Um, mm-hmm. Our first one out of the gate in January is going to be the um, spring preview because that's how the seasons work in publishing <laughs> where January is part of spring. Uh, yeah. Or no, winter. Is, there, or winter. is it winter? It depends. It's winter. Um, but then April is part of winter. It's all nuts. But anyway, we're going to do the first few months of 2020 as a preview there. Um, we're going to do some Adaptation Nations. We're going to do the Nobel one. We're going to do a Half-Baked Ideas. I think we might dust off some things we've done in other um, places before but haven't brought to this show. Mm-hmm. So your feedback was very helpful in terms of you, people liking the bonus episodes. In, term, in terms of making decisions about which to do and what not to do, there was advocates for everything and not too much um, hatred of any one particular thing. So we'll roll it back Yes, but more is the what I Yes. Think. You know, we did get really fun feedback, including that we have converted someone to being a Dan Brown fan. So like my work here is done. Um and I'm curious from our listeners as we're gearing up for that winter spring oh. book preview, because that'll be us playing buy sell hold on like ten or fifteen yep. of the big titles of the first call it five months, three, three, four, five months of the year. I put um, in the schedule to do one in January, one in May, and one in September. Okay, so the first four months of yeah. the year. Um, let us know if you have ideas about what you know the big titles of the early part of 2020 are going to be, or the buzzy titles, the stuff you'd like to hear us do by mm-hmm. Soul Hold on um, podcast at bookriot.com. I have started a list of titles that we've been noodling on, but I would love some listener input there. And then before we forget to do this again, Jeff, because we've had a couple weeks of gift recommendation shows, which oh. are always super fun. We need to shout out. I'm not giving the person's name because there's yes. not affirmative consent in yes. the email, but one of you listeners wins like the merit badge of all time who mm-hmm. discovered wrote into us said that he discovered the podcast like five months ago eight months ago eight, eight months, months ago. ago and in that time has listened to 
all of it from the very beginning, which I am sorry, I don't want to listen to me from six years ago. Um, But thank you for that commitment. Your completionist nature is remarkable. And (laughs) that's a lot of time to spend with the two of us and still like us afterwards. Um, Or is it you can't, you know, I can't quit you broke back mountain (laughs) sort of a situation. You you wish you could, but you can't. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But thank you for writing. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much. And and what a kick in the emotional genitalia it must have been to get through it and realize that there were bonus episodes coming at the end. (laughs) Like I'm almost done. Oh, wait, there's 10 extra that are unnumbered. I hadn't even thought of that. Great. Just great great job, listener. That's great effort. (laughs) That's great effort. Um, All right. Let's do a break uh, and try to recover from that silliness. But thank you for that. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid-back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be, right? Right, girl, like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series. Miss Wong, got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. Okay, follow. There's a lot of follow up, I guess, this week. It's connected to year end book list. We're in the seat. We're in now we're in the season. We're in the Christmas season. We're in the holiday New Year's season, but definitely in the if you have a best books of the year list, it's coming out uh, or it's probably already been out. But before we get to that. The Nobel Prize says, you know what? I don't want everyone just to think about the best books of the year. I need to remind people of my dysfunction. And two of the people appointed um, to help oversee reforms to the Nobel in literature have resigned. Weirdly not directly in response <laughs> to Peter Hanke's being awarded um, one of the Nobel Prizes. I guess he did he win the 2018 or 2019? I'm not sure if we know the pres- I think particular he won the assignations. 20, he won the 2018 and Olga Tokarczuk won the 2019. 
um, they have resigned because the Swedish Academy is taking too long to instigate and initiate the kinds of changes they thought were needed to fix what's broke. And so when the people you got on board to help you fix what's broke say this is not fixable or isn't being fixed, you've got a meta problem. Um, And here we are. I wonder how long they thought it would take. Like, There's a quote here from one of the, and I don't, as always, there's a link in the show notes, bookriot.com slash listen. I don't want to butcher these these very fine people's Northern European names that I don't have any phonetic um, mental model for how to perform. Said something to the effect of, a year is too short in my lifetime, Mm -hmm. or it's too short for me and too long for them. Or no, other way. Other way around. Too long for me, too short for them. So I guess, my guess is they wanted something to happen for this go-round that just wow. happened. Mm-hmm. Or either the one that just happened or once this one happened in preparing for the 2020 Nobel. I'm not sure why they didn't resign. If it was for the 2018-2019 awarding process, I'm not sure why they didn't resign there. So I'm guessing it's, okay, now that we got through this, we got two awards out, we've got the committee in place. For 2020, things are going to be different. They're like, slow your roll, dude, who wants to help us that we brought on to help us. Ain't happening like that. He's like, I'm out. That's what my that's the story I'm telling myself about what happened here. Yeah, I think that's very likely. I'm I'm still stuck way back at how did anyone expect to change the culture inside an academy that's had a decades long culture problem <laughs> in one year. Um, I think we hear stories like this. I mean, we've heard of Inside and Outside Publishing and other organizations where an organization says they want to make a change. Mm-hmm. Let's bring in someone, and then once it actually comes time for to, to put the rubber on the road. There's obstacles are thrown yeah, up, objections, systemic things happen. Yeah, so I can kind of see that. I think even if you are making progress, it just takes a long time. Yeah. It just, it, these things just always take longer. And um, I feel for these folks who said that they would be on this committee and do this work. This is really hard work to do, to be like, sure, I'll go into this group, this organization that has existed for many, many decades and exists like in secret. No one really knows how it operates. Mm-hmm. And then we'll try to suss out the systematic problems and change them. Um, that's just a huge thing to jump into. And if somebody there gave them the idea that that work could be accomplished in a year, um, that's unfortunate. This Things are just not looking good for the Nobel. Just increasingly bad. Yeah. Um, I don't know what else to say about it. We don't know enough to yeah. know more or say more and speculate more. A terrible sign for 2020 um, being much different. As you and I have speculated and spitballed, There's a there could be ways to make the Nobel much more interesting and relevant and responsive to the modern world. I do think though even even we, as you suggest, would think it would take a lot of effort to get there. I I, mm-hmm. I can sympathize with the Nobel saying we want to make institutional changes, but we're just coming out of this tumultuous, to say the least, period. We may not be ready for the next award. Now, could they have said, Okay, I'm sorry, we're not gonna be ready for the next award, but by twenty twenty one we're going to have a new structure in place. Would that have been enough for these people to say, okay, I'll stick it out that long? Yeah, who knows? Because if it were me and I were in their position and, and the organization had made that kind of promise, I, I think I would be willing to play along. But again, yeah, it's hard like, to know. 
Right. I just have way more questions than answers. Like, was there a plan with, you know, like milestones and some way that they were like, here are the things we're going to do over the next year to make change? Or was that a vague, like, we'll take a year and make changes? Is there some kind of audit that's happening? Like, Mm -hmm. that's these things also don't just happen because you hope that they'll happen. Like they take systematic work. Um, and it, I would just guess I'm speculating, but I would guess like that the support and planning for that kind of systematic work either was just not done on the right timeline that was realistic or the systems weren't there or maybe both. Um, like just speaking from inside, like I work with a small nonprofit that's only nine years old and making, making systemic Mm. change in a nine year old organization takes way longer than you would think that it does. Yeah. All right. So that's a Nobel. Um, speaking of systemic change taking way longer than you're comfortable with. Look, I, you're not you're not on Twitter at all anymore. Are you on Twitter at all? Anymore? I have my Twitter account. I don't tweet, but like twice a week, I open the app for two minutes and just see what's happening. And then yeah. I'm like, right, I don't care. Because this is the kind of thing I'm completely off Twitter for my own happiness, and it's been worth it. But I do miss the one of the things I miss is context for something like this because. Back in the day, this is the kind of thing that I would have seen tweeted about all the time. I don't know if people are still paying attention. I don't know if people are doing this. But the Goodreads choice winners were announced a day or two ago. And it's 20 winners in all the categories. And we, we did sort of a, I, I'd say, charitably half-assed overview of it <laughs> because, you know, we haven't read so many of these and there's genres that we don't know. The winners were announced. More than 4.6 million vote casts. And 19 out of the 20 winners are white. And look, we've talked before about so much progress that's been made. And I guess I had, I, I didn't realize until seeing this that I've been sort of heartened over time. Like, we're not in the promised land by any stretch of the imagination to a more inclusive, representative, and fair publishing and reading and book world. But I thought we were better off than 19 out of 20. And this is its own list and its own source of awarding, which I think we should talk about. But I really have to say the wind was taken out of my sails mm-hmm. when I saw this. And I'm not sure if this is people are tweeting about it. This is a thing people, you know, and this is a thing that we would do on the site back in the day. We didn't write about this on the site because I think sort of the moment of like really bean counting in, in that very work that needs to be done way hasn't been as popular. I don't know. hasn't been as, I don't know, a strategy, I guess. Because mm-hmm. I think, and a lot of lists we'll talk about in a minute, it's not really a problem in lists it was a problem for. But that it's a problem in this list is a sign that I was wrong, and I'm wrong to feel the way I do about the progress. That, that's my yeah. reaction at this. Am I, am I unfair? What do you think? Well, I think that there are uh, like several layers of progress that we've been looking for in publishing, mm-hmm. and that the Goodreads Choice Awards has improved significantly in the last couple of years in that the starting lists of nominated books that Goodreads curates and puts out into the world have been increasingly diverse. So Goodreads doing its part there of like Goodreads has paid attention. Goodreads has started off with a foundational list that um, Mm -hmm. I also did not see bean counting of the nominees this year. But when we did our glance at most of the categories, there was representation of women and representation of people of color and several titles by out and open LGBTQ authors and Mm -hmm. other other vectors of identity um, have been represented in those starting lists. I think that and I think that's great. Like publishing has changed in like the way that 
discussion about diversity happens, the number of books by especially people of color that are being published seems to be increasing since this conversation with like, we need diverse books really started five or six years ago. And we don't have to like within the industry, it feels like there's much less need for bean counting because people have started to pay attention to it in those internal pipeline ways. Um, There's still a lot of work to be done. Do not get me wrong. I don't think that publishing has made all the changes they need to to make. One of the critical things that you can notice looking down this list of winners is that most of these books that won are books from major publishers that also had humongous marketing campaigns with lots of dollars spent to get readers to read those books. And I think it continues to be true. Like I have not seen the numbers, but I fully believe that it continues to be true that most of the books that get that kind of backing from major publishers are books by white people. And that's not because they're having meetings in boardrooms talking about like we don't want to put books money behind these books by people of color but i think it's a product of inherent bias and then the feedback loop that, mm-hmm. or implicit bias and the feedback loop that happens when you only market books by white people and then you are so shocked that those books sell and then you continue to buy more of those books and then put more marketing money behind them and and we've like beat that horse to death but apparently we need to keep beating it where it's really disappointing or where the work remains to be done i guess both of those things is that once Goodreads's curation part stopped and it was turned over to the reading mm-hmm. public, to the 4.6 million people who voted, that voting still regresses to primarily books, like predominantly and overwhelmingly books by white authors. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a product of the marketing and it's a product of that this discussion we're having within publishing and within like also increasingly bigger corners of the internet and corners of culture about representation and diversity and inclusivity still have not gone mainstream. Like it's Mm. easy swimming in our internet, in the internet circles we swim in to think that most people are paying attention now to the diversity of their reading in a way that they weren't five years ago. And I just don't think that's true. Um, And this is a reminder that that's not true and that the industry has work to do if they want the average reader who's reading what, like five to 10 books a year um, to like, if we have a shot of this final list looking more diverse, it takes publishing making changes that put um, that put a lot of money behind more diverse titles to get in front of those average readers so that when they go to vote on the Goodreads best of list and they're looking at, you know, 20 things in a category and identifying the one or two out of that category that they read to vote for. Right. There's, you know, there's money behind some titles that aren't by white people. Like it's, this is like truly turtles all the way down, but I think it's a real reminder that um, the conversations we've been having in the industry about increasingly diverse reading, I feel like I've said the word increasingly 25 times in the last five minutes, um, but about, making that change is not something that's part of still broad public consciousness yet. Yeah. Uh, and you're right. That's one of the the black boxes that we don't have data about. And in our evolving sort of, um, I don't know, sitting on our hands of interest about the Vita count, mm-hmm. right? We talked mm-hmm. about this, and I think we talked in that context about what other metrics are there out there that we could mark some change? Because the strikingly... There's a lot of women on this list, yes. and you know, you know, Vita has moved over time to count um, the coverage of and by women authors and now women of color, um, and then people of um, diverse 
sexual uh, orientation, identification, or non-identification. Mm-hmm. But what metric matters, I think, is kind of you're hitting on that. Is it marketing? Because I could believe that. Is it? Is there? A, is there a correlation between the things that get marketing dollars and things that sell? And that's its own chicken and the egg problem. Because if publishing knows that people are mostly going to, and let's be honest, in America especially, still more white people than not white people, and then the wealth and education and access to reading materials are even more concentrated among white people. There's a there's there's a recursive thing going on there. Do they? Advertise those books they know are going to sell to white people because they're going to sell, or they would could sell something else if they spent the marketing dollars differently. I don't know enough about book marketing and the metrics they look at to actually know. The thing that I think I was tricked by, and it sounds like maybe you're feeling the same way, is the thing that moved relatively quickly was sort of the editorial mm-hmm. things that there there are more books by marginalized communities now than there were 10 years ago. I don't think there's any question. I would be shocked if someone counted and said, actually, it's about the same. I'd be willing to be wrong. I'd love to be to know that for sure. But my mental model is that there, there are more titles available to be picked up and read than there were 10 years ago. And we're going to get to this in a minute. Critics and the curators are making more of an effort or an effort at all <laughs> to, 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 to look at authors outside of what they would have looked at 10 years ago. I think that's also mm-hmm. true. The thing that's hardest to move is like it's kind of like there's a there's a quote in West Wing, you know, the laws have changed, but now it's time to change our hearts and minds. Kind of the laws have changed to some degree, like the critical and curatorial laws or guidelines or best practices or ethos that have changed. But the hearts and minds of readers and the kinds of people that read books that show up on these kinds of award lists that take the time and effort or even care or even feel represented enough to participate, their hearts and minds haven't changed. And if it's marketing, I don't know. If it's implicit bias, I don't know. But this is the work that no one really knows how to do, I don't think. I, I don't think we know how to do this, make everyone feel differently about things. Yeah, and I'm not even sure it's I, – I would love for the thing that happens to be that we have like – a mainstream discussion that trickles out to like all those book clubs in the world. Yeah, right. Where it becomes an intention of people who love books and reading to buy and read more books by women and people of color and by LGBTQ folks and by disabled folks and all of those other ways that people identify and experiences that inform the kind of work that they would do like that's the ideal right is that like everyone who's buying books is doing it really deliberately and consciously and thinking about what they're reading in that way if we can't get there or we can't get there yet i think it takes some really like broad bold moves and we've seen a couple small mm. publishers make announcements that like in for an entire calendar year they're only publishing books by women. Um I've seen that a few times. I think that I've seen but I can't remember the reference that perhaps like w- one small publisher only publishing books by people of color for a calendar year and like multiple years on big scales of those kinds of things. Um I think is what it would take to change the supply that then would ultimately change the demand. Like if somebody is sitting in one of the big five right now and looking at the balance sheet, like let's imagine that someone at the big five actually has paid attention to the numbers. Like I hope someone in Penguin Random House has a spreadsheet that tells them what percentage of books they publish this year are by people of color. I don't know if that exists, but I'm going to 
fantasize that it does. So in this fantasy, they have this spreadsheet and let's say it's that 20% of their books were by people of color. I think that's really high, but let's say that to make big systemic changes, I think they would need to be like, you know, for the next three years, we're going to invert the ratio and 80% of the books that we're going to be that we're going to publish are going to be by people of color, or we're going to bump it up to like 50 50 or something that makes a really big difference um, in a like in a market way about what's available to readers. And that yeah, it yeah. could be it could be that I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm disheartened. And so I'm not sure. I'm like, yeah, fine, whatever. I, to me, the, the thing that I, I guess my, my waking nightmare is that this is a self-reinforcing mm. thing. And yeah, there and- isn't a way out of it that even someone who publishes tw- 60% of the trade books in a year could put their thumb on the mm-hmm. lever and change. Um, yeah, it's it's just so... It's so sticky. And this Goodreads list also still, though, has like some notes that lean towards that lean towards and indicate progress, like the best romance. And it also won best debut novel, Red, White and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston is a um, romance about two men. And Mm -hmm. for that to have been read widely enough to have won, um, especially in the romance category where like readers read a ton and are very avid fans. I think that like that shows market progress. Um, Jonathan Van Ness from Queer Eye, his memoir over the top in which he discusses finding out that he's HIV positive and living with that for several years and just all of the work that he's done in the queer community. He won best memoir and autobiography. And then Anthony uh, Porkowski, also from Queer Eye, won the best food and cookbooks category. So we've got LGBTQ rep happening um, in this big scale in a way that we wouldn't have had several years ago or that I don't think we saw several years ago. Like there's little things that are moving forward, but it's, man, it's just slow. And um, I don't want to talk about the list anymore except to shout out the Mm -hmm. the Ali Wong Dear Girls one for humor. I just picked it up on Uh audio. So I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) It's, I listened to it on audio a couple of weeks ago. Um, I loved it. Ali Wong's like level of um, crass humor is something that I will personally be looking forward to the Jeff O'Neill response oh, no. to. <laughs> okay. There are, there are like a, a lot of um, stories about bodily functions. <laughs> well, I'm listening to it. I'm delighted by that. <laughs> my, my small protest against whatever. Get on your scooter. <laughs> yeah, and I guess as as counterpoint context... I don't know if this makes me feel better or worse um, about the intractability um, that I, I'm detecting from the Goodreads list is Emily Temple at LitHub mm. did their ultimate best books of 2019 list in which they picked, they took 30 sources and aggregated and, you know, basically said which books appear on the most of these other publications, best of lists, book rights included out there, Books from Magic, which is an independent bookstore in uh, Brooklyn, New York, and the New York Times, and Oprah Magazine, Publishers Weekly, a nice a nice mix of things. And the two books that were most included on 21 of the 30 lists were um, Ocean Vuong's On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous and Colson Whitehead's The Nickel Boys, both of which I thought were fantastic. Yep. So some of this is... Um, <laughs> confirmation bias that I already <laughs> like these books, but they all appeared on 21 lists. Um, those are the, the two most included, both by people of color. So as counterpoint, it's one data point, but I just was struck by like, 
as much as we da- dog on and are a part of the critical mm-hmm. establishment, as shown that we're included in this list, we, the royal we, the, the, the vague <laughs> internet entity that is bookride.com, like that, there's fewer people that are, are, th- are reading with a certain kind of intentionality that most readers aren't, and that there's a disconnect there feels tough because it feels like a lot of the work has been done to get this kind of post written. Like this is the kind of product we wanted mm-hmm. to see on this kind of post. But either the tale of history is long or it's you just it's gonna take some pulling that that through the sand still uh to get it up out of the ocean. I just was really struck by wow because like I, I said personally the Nickel Boys crushes the testaments which won the fiction thing. They were competing together head to head. And I was like they're just not even on the same level. No. And I don't know. I, I guess it would be worse if this was more like the Goodreads Choice Awards, but mm-hmm. somehow I even feel worse. Like, well, even this does, even that we're this place with the critical establishment doesn't seem to be moving the needle um, when it comes to what people are reading and buying and reviewing and voting for. I think it's, it has moved the needle some. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was super confident right there. That's what that's the sound of confidence. You know, I have to believe that it's moved the needle some and that we're yeah. still in like the inner circle of readerness or maybe we're not in the inner inner circle but we're not all the way out at the edge of the concentric mm-hmm. <laughs> rings where like Book Riot's been uh, like Book Riot's own trajectory of doing this kind of work has moved from really like overt discussion of like why you should even care about diversity in publishing, why this is a thing, and lists that um, when we initially started covering it, and I feel like really when this started being an issue in publishing at like writ large, a lot of the um, effort to recommend books that were not by mm-hmm. white men um, fell out in posts that were like 25 black women writers you should try. Right, and, and that was where we needed to be at the time for people who were like, okay, I need to read things that aren't just by white men. Where do I go? And in the last several years, we've, as a publication, been able to move away from things that um, are always that explicit and move more to um, – well, move directly and implicitly and on purpose to making sure that every post that comes out on Book Riot has representation of women in the titles and representation of people of color. Um, and that every book we like every post we put in front of our readers, they have an opportunity to be exposed to those things. And they're not always highlighted as books by a woman or books by people of color. Um, but that over time, the books that our audience tells us that they've read and enjoyed have become more diverse. And then just anecdotally, we hear from like, we get emails to this podcast. And our um, general inbox for book right gets emails from people who say things like i never used to even think about the diversity of my reading and then you know i started hearing about it on the show or i started reading about it on the site or i just discovered all of these books that i wasn't hearing about in other places and i think that like that work is happening and these other publications that are listed um that are listed here as sources for Emily Temple's piece, many of those publications have also made explicit mm-hmm. changes to the ways that they do things and their coverage has become more diverse. And I think that like that just ha- what you highlight to readers, what you recommend to them has to impact what they are reading. And then as those folks go out and like recommend to their wider circles, I do think that this change happens. It just it happens frustratingly slowly. Um, you know, now that we're looking at it, I would love like a cross reference of the sources in Emily Temple's piece here at LitHub and the Vita mm. counts, like any of these that also have Vita counts. 
to to see how that shook out. Yeah, um, not a lot of them are. I know the Times is on there, and the Guardian usually, right? The Guardian, New Yorker, um, Washington. No, yeah, well, is Washington Post on there? I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember the, if Publishers Weekly is. Or no, not. the the. And the Vita is the worst offenders on that one are the New York Times Review of Books historically and I guess the London Review of Books yeah. is on there too. And neither of those uh, are included here. But because you also get publications like ours that are dedicated to books, Publishers Weekly, but then you get lifestyle magazines like Real mm-hmm. Simple or Oprah Magazine, Good Housekeeping, Esquire, um, Glamour, um, which... They, I don't know how how plugged in those particular editors are to sort of book coverage nerd concerns. You know, I, I'd be fascinated to know um, in a way that I know people at Publishers Weekly and other and 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 Vulture and um, LitHub are thinking about these things overtly and mm-hmm. explicitly. So I don't know. I thought those two back to back were really interesting to to think about yeah. together. Um, we got more lists. Let's do another sponsor and then get into it. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books, and so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high-stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players, but what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Okay, it's, it's, we got the critics, we got the votes. Should we talk about dollars? Yeah. Where the dollars about are going. Dollars. So Amazon's most sold this year in books. Um, Amazon Charts presents this year in books, your guide to the most sold, most read, and most loved books of 2019. The, the thing that's amazing about this is, well, you tell me what I'm going to say. You could probably guess what I'm going to say about this. These five, these five here. 
Only one of them was published this year. That's it. Only one was published this year. Um, so the five are The Silent Patient by Alex Michaelides, where the Crawdads sing, you and I pick for the book of the century to this point, <laughs> as people have known, Dylan Owens, <laughs> Educated by Tara Westover, Becoming by Michelle Obama, and The Handmaid's Tale um, by Margaret Atwood. I'm completely unsurprised by this list, but showing them side by side, I think is a fascinating snapshot of something. I can't quite put my finger on it, though. I there's something here, but I can't quite put my, I can't quite put my finger on it. Yeah, it does feel very zeitgeisty. Yeah, like, it feels right, but I don't know what that means. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's make noises about it. For yeah. Okay. <laughs> unstructured noise making. Right. Um, also, where the crawdads sing. That's the big book club hit, right? Okay. And, it's, and it yep. surged from last year into this year. Um, same thing for Becoming. And both Crawdads and Becoming came out in the fall of 2018. Mm-hmm. So like they were picking up steam coming. They had the, the entirety of 2019 to really be big deals as well. Handmaid's Tale is obviously on this list because of the television show and then also the Testaments. Like, yep. very intentional. And Trump, and Trump right? And I mean, Trump, there's no, right. There's no, yeah. no other way to... I don't think we can yeah. very either. intentional efforts made to bring back attention to the world of that mm-hmm. story. Um, and anytime you're going to have a sequel that's as marketed as The Testaments is, the original, I think, is going to become a big seller. And it really helps when there's a massive TV show behind it. And the president has scared everyone into feeling like they need to read The Handmaid's Tale in order to prepare for the future. Um, educated, just such a phenomenon from 2018 and manages to still be... <sighs> In hardcover, it's gonna be in hardcover forever. Mm. Um, that you know what? Now that you say that, that's the wild card. I have a mental model for where the crowd is That's the big book pick. Mm-hmm. The Michelle Obama, a singular phenomenon, both right. her politically, mm-hmm. the identity, the book itself, the audio performance, Handmaid's Tale, a reverse Bermuda Triangle of things for that <laughs> book. You know, uh-huh. like a lot of things coming together for that book to to reemerge. And then the Silent Patient takes the spot. You know, the the center square. In the book buying world for the Gone Girls, the thriller mm-hmm. that everyone reads and buys, page turnery, great read. You know, the yeah. Gone Girl, the girl on the train. Um, Airport uh, book. Yeah, yeah, the woman in the window, right? Mm-hmm. Is that the, the one mm-hmm. by the guy who lies yeah. about stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> you know, there's, this is, we've seen this last four or five years, really since Gone Girl. Yeah. There's been a place for a hardcover lit- commercial fiction mystery thriller crossover book. And that's that one. The educated, I don't, I, the memoir, I guess it's part of a trend, and this is going to be something we're going to pick up on a future bonus episode that we're preparing for independently so we don't cross-pollinate too much. <laughs> but there is a nook out there now for the memoir, the exceptional memoir by a woman is a, is a, is a real thing that has a lot of juice behind it, and they sell a lot of copies. Yeah. And I think this is the one that's... Sold the most, I guess. As, as yeah, I think that Educated is for the 2010s decade what um, the Glass House was for oh. the aughts. Like there is, and I, I think that this is a thing that happens, that has happened in books for a long time. Mm-hmm. But the memoir by a woman about... Crappy a, stuff happening. Yeah, a messed up childhood and yeah. then overcoming it. Um 
there's like, there's a niche for that, uh, not even a niche. There's a big market for that. And they make for great book club books, but like most books are bought by middle-aged women mm. and many of those people are in book clubs and a book like educated. And then before it, a book like the glass house. And now I'll have to start thinking about like, what was the one in the nineties? Um, hmm, I don't know. Like those are well-written you, you can just gulp them down because it's also like looking at a train wreck um, yeah, right. and then ultimately inspiring because of what the person has overcome and educated also has the added layer of like a, a essentially cultish religion um, added to it and right. like doomsday prepper stuff. Like there's just a lot of um, really hard to look away from elements in that and book. it's about books. I mean, right. in, a, in a non in a non trivial way, it's about the power of books. Which, right. if you're someone like you or me, we are in for that, mm-hmm. right? Like that's going to be a part. If, if part of this say, getting saving yourself and saving yourself through books, what book reader doesn't like that? Right. So that makes a lot of sense to me. And then the where the crawdads, there are book club books, and then there's where the crawdads sing. I mean, <laughs> it's almost it's almost like. It's like the apex predator of book club phenomenons. In my book buying lifetime, there's nothing I think that even comes close. Even in the heyday of like, Gun Girl wasn't a book club book, was it? It didn't. Mm, None of these books we've seen in our lifetime, these commercial fiction crossover book, has there been anything like this? I want. I wish we could go back and look at sales numbers before the internet was a thing, but for the big Oprah books, like the early Oprah picks, you know, like the early Oprah stuff, like. Like the Wally Lamb. Um, she's the Wally, come undone. Yes, That's sold. Yeah. That was right. all like, over the place. She's come undone. Um, Janet Oleander's uh, or Janet Finch's White Oleander was a big one. Um, the Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood. Like lovely some of those, bones. All these right. Kinds of yeah, books, yeah. Some of those early Oprah picks that when like when Oprah was picking contemporary titles for the book club, not when she was doing like Beloved or War and Peace. But I would be curious about how many copies of War and Peace Oprah moved. Um, I wonder like what those sales look like. If you, if you took, she's come undone from like 1997 ish and Mm. projected that onto um, what sales today look like where, where crawdads would land. Cause I feel like those books were also everywhere. Yeah, I think you're right. And maybe, especially the first few, there was a lot more wood behind those arrows. I think maybe the thing dinging the subsequent picks was there were just, they, they came hot upon the heels of each other. There were a lot of picks. Where were the crawdads, the Oprah's book club thing, like the water dancer isn't here, right? Which was the right. Oprah book club pick of 2019, suggests that this has a momentum of its own. And momentum of its own is, the, is, is probably the thing, the only thing worth more than Oprah pick is internal mm-hmm. momentum, right? Um, but fascinating to see here. And this is what people buy. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm. there's one out of five that are a person of color, four of five women. Um, do I guess I'd, I feel like I'm not applying the same critical filter onto oh. this as I was to the Goodreads, but there's yeah. fewer in Michelle Obama's there. It's already we applied five a lot times to- <laughs> as many, if, but yeah, it's I mean, a smaller data set. So we applied a lot of critical filter to where the crawdads sing in that book. Yeah, episode. no, that's true. And but, de facto, The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. And, and in the uh, top five fiction, like top five selling fiction titles for the year from Amazon, all are by white people. Yep. It's Crawdads, The Guardians by John Grisham, The Institute by Stephen King, and then Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Um, um, and then in nonfiction, 
Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, was number one. Then Michelle I mean, Obama. talk about a run. Talk right? about a run. How to Win Friends and Influence People. Every year since 1936. Yeah. On there. Just bonkers. Um, Becoming by Michelle Obama's number two, Take Control of Your Life um, by Mel Robbins, number three, which is maybe the most interesting because it's an audible yeah. original. So right. it couldn't have been a bestseller on anybody's list except Amazon's. Mm-hmm. Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, and then Educated by um, Tara Westover. Yeah, so one out of ten, you moved to one out of ten. One out of ten. Not great, but also, like, what, even more than Goodreads, Amazon's, like, lists represent, um, oh, those are the most read titles. So they break down the most read and then the most Mm -hmm. sold, uh, but the... Um, and in the most sold then can't hurt me by David Goggins, who's also a person of color is on right. the nonfiction list. So that goes to two out of 10. Um, still not great, but I can't, I don't think that anybody's list of um, best books or most read or most sold is more representative of mainstream reading consciousness than Amazon's. No, um, so this not. tells us there's a lot of work left to be done. Yeah. Weird. Um, I, again, Harry Potter is its own. It's the genre. It's the phenomenon of phenomenons. But it's weird that Order of the Phoenix is the most read, the middle yeah. book. <laughs> I. It's the longest one too. I think my family did the audiobook. Yeah. And the audiobook I think was seventeen thousand hours. I that's think that's what, what the, it was. Is it the fourth one or the? Fifth it's the fourth one. one. It's the, the fourth, fourth one. one. No, but in all seriousness, it's twenty eight hours yeah. of audio. It's a long that's book. So much. I don't know among Harry Potter fanatics of which. I'm a Harry Potter fan, but not a fanatic, and those two things are meaningfully different, if only to me, for some sense of ego. Is it's a meaningful is that gen- is that scale. is that generally thought to be the best one? Like, why is that? Is that typical oh. in these years? Hmm. Why is this one the one people are, are reading the most? Maybe it was the one that was available on Kindle Unlimited. Like, there's we got to remember that too. Is that, mm, that most right. read and most bought? Or it could be two different things. Um, and then our boy Bill. Yay, Bill Gates. <laughs> Reading with intention. Now, one, you can critique Bill Gates for many things, and many people have. What we are here for, at least what I'm here for, is you can tell the dude reads with intention. Can't mm-hmm. you? Don't yes. you think? I would maybe like him to add some um, a greater focus on diversity and inclusivity yeah. to his intentions. But yes, I think he's very deliberate about mm-hmm. the things that he picks. Um, reads widely and a variety of things. Sadly, this year, he is not explaining them, his selections to us while driving through no. a completely bananas Christmas light display. <laughs> a charming video of these hand-drawn illustrations depicting each of the five choices worth a read, but sadly not worth a live blog uh, to it. So the picks are um, American Marriage by Terry Jones, These Truths by Jill Lepore, Growth by Vaclav Smil, Prepared by Diane Tavener, Tavener mm-hmm. and Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Um, all interesting. I've read three of these five. Ah, I have only read An American Marriage, which came out last year. Yeah. And that was my own, like, I think this is interesting. Usually these are like books of the year. And I believe last year, all of mm-hmm. Bill Gates's picks were books that were out in 2018. Um, so I'm glad that he didn't necessarily limit it to new books in 2019 so that an American marriage could be on it because that was a phenomenal book. Um, what are the other two that you've read? Oh, I read American marriage. I read growth and I read why we sleep. Mm, Okay. Growth is really cool. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. 
I did that on audio. And then I have been circling these truths by Jill Lepore, which the blurb here, she's made a deliberate choice to make diverse points of view central to the narrative. 800 Mm -hmm. pages. Amanda listened to it on audio. I know it took forever, but she said that it was incredibly worthwhile. Yeah, I've heard. That's what I've heard. Um, But like a lot of incredibly worthwhile things, I am lazy. And it (laughs) might be tough to to get me uh, to that one there. And why we sleep. Um, I didn't, it wasn't one of my 2019 New Year's resolutions. It might be 2020 to have some sort of sleep kind of New Year's resolution. But my intentionality around sleeping is something I've been trying to pay attention to as I've gotten older and busier and, you know, the light is fading. I got to keep it kindled for as long as I can. Yeah. I feel like I should read that. I've been on a mission to just keep, I like so much of being an adult is just realizing how much you are actually a toddler. And it's like yes. every week on Sunday night, I'm just like, my intention for the week is to go to bed at my bedtime. Like, yep. first of all, I have a bedtime. And right. secondly, I need to follow it. Right. And <laughs> that, you know, you know, bedtime is one of those things that no one else is really looking out for. There's a lot of, especially, no, especially if you're in a rela- if you're in a committed yeah. relationship financially and eating wise and exercise wise, I think you get a lot more sort of um, partner uh, feedback about, you know, mm-hmm, like, you know, we mm-hmm. should do this, but bedtime isn't always yoked like that. They don't really pay. T- I don't pay attention. And Michelle doesn't too much to, I pay attention to, did you sleep well, right. but I'm not like, you should really get in bed, <laughs> or or she's not like, you should really go to sleep right now. This is kind of not in our, I think in a lot of people's um, idiolects of two to talk about, you should be going mm-hmm. to sleep right now, um, among the other things. So th- that's one, too. It, it's a really interesting book as well. Sleep is, biology a nightmare, and sleep is a nightmare within it. <laughs> um, for, uh, anything else to say about that? You can go check it out. Yeah, Yeah, check that out. I'm just glad that Bill Gates does this. I think you can also tell, like, from the fact that he's spending time in his life as Bill Gates to sit down and make videos and blog posts about his favorite books Mm -hmm. of the year. Like, this is a person who genuinely and deeply believes in and has experienced the power of, of books and reading. All right. Let's do one more sponsor and then pick up a couple of the week's news stories. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Taming Seven is an epic and unforgettable love story in the international best-selling and TikTok phenomenon, The Boys of Tom and Series, from Chloe Walsh. So Tom and's cheekiest lad, Jared Gibsey Gibson, has always been a comedian, but inside he is haunted by events of the past and he uses humor to cope, hiding his true self from the world. 
Then you have Claire Biggs, who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibsy, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice, and she becomes determined to tame her wild-at-heart childhood best friend. So the Boys of Tommen series is an internationally best-selling YA romance series that has taken TikTok by storm. It's perfect for readers looking for new adult slash crossover romance, dual point of views, friends to lovers, marathon worthy TikTok books, and angsty tearjerkers. Taming Seven is published today and it's the fifth book in the series. So make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay. Oh, boy. Uh, Books in Prisons. Um, Kelly Jensen wrote for us a really interesting piece. I'm going to put in the show notes, so we're not going to talk about it because I encourage you to read the piece about basically a prison charging um, inmates to read Project Gutenberg ebooks, which are free. So that's yep. the prison industrial complex at work. In West Virginia, this story, um, West Virginia inmates will be charged by the minute to read ebooks on tablets. Because what we want to do is disincentivize people, especially those of people who find themselves in jail, not to read. Um, a very razor and blade situation. <laughs> you get free tablets and you're charged by the minute. That's what I like to see is gamifying revenue from prisoners around books. That sounds fantastic. That makes and you feel good about capitalism. N- notably they're using the tablets will cost um, about five cents per minute. It's currently discounted to three cents per minute. Um, And in West Virginia, prisoners make um, prisoners who work in prison in the prison system make between four cents and 58 cents an hour. So it's possible that it would cost them one hour of work to read or use the tablet for one minute. I mean, borderline unconscionable <laughs> in my i mean i don't know what else to say just about mind blowing mind blowing mind blowing um we're going to continue to call out these stories as we see them you want to talk about kansas our beloved Kansas, who's always on the right side of history about this. Yes. Uh, well, the Human Rights Defense Center has concluded that Kansas still unfairly bans books in prisons. They've produced a list of more than 200 books and magazines um, that have been intercepted by prison administrators in recent months, including uh, The Overstory by Richard Powers, which won the Pulitzer last year, books by John Grisham, Neil Gaiman, Tony Morrison, Nora Roberts, and other um, popular authors. The Human Rights Defense Center, which is based in Seattle, revealed um, back in May that the Kansas Department of Corrections maintained a list of banned books for easy reference by the mailroom staff. Uh, The corrections secretary eliminated the list after widespread criticism when Mm. he arrived back in July and installed a new policy for reviewing that allows for consideration of literary merit. Um, The list of recently censored materials raises questions about the balance between literary value and concerns about references to sex and violence. There's no indication here of who's in charge of determining literary merit or what the um, criteria for having literary value are. Like this is a very um, subjective determination all the way around. Um, the, they give the example here of the overstory by Richard Powers, which is about nine Americans from different times and places who address the destruction of forests. And it was banned for references to police violence. The story includes a scene in which authorities remove environmental activists from a logging camp. Um, 
So that's the kind of subjective judgment that is still happening. And the HRDC has determined that even though the new person removed the list of banned titles and established new guidelines, those new guidelines are still producing um, unfair, unjustifiable bans on books in Kansas prisons. So if you are from our uh, begrudgingly beloved home state yeah. <laughs> and you're a voter there um, and this is an issue that you care about. Now you have a little more information about it. Uh, this piece is from the Topeka Capital Journal online and the link will be in the show notes. You know, this, these lists are always security related. You know, we mm-hmm. did an annotated episode about it. Kelly's written about it. We've talked about a lot of these stories where how books get banned and, and culled from coming into to prison systems. Have we ever heard of one story where you could directly attribute some problem in a prison to something somebody read in a book? No, it's the same thing as how we've never heard a story about how a book turned a teenager gay. Yeah, it's just uh, yeah, it's just a bunch of garbage. Sound and fury signifying less than nothing. It's sig- signifying malice. It's, it's not even signifying nothing. Um, just signifying malice there. Let's do one publishing story um, just because I've seen a lot of talk about this recently um, and picking up steam rather than slowing down is the steam train locomotive then is audiobooks. Um, and I guess I hadn't thought about this in these terms, but this is a story from the independent over in jolly old England. E- audiobooks predicted to overtake UK ebook sales in 2020. I guess if you had told me that it already happened, I would have believed you. But this seems to me a seminal moment in something we've been feeling and seeing about audiobooks being the thing we didn't expect mm-hmm. digital books to actually turn into. The ebooks yeah. aren't the thing, but audiobooks are the thing that were going to be popular. Um, really, that's a, and that's a 30% increase on audiobook sales year over year, not over several years. That's year over year in the UK. Uh, fascinating. To see, and I'm not sure there's anything else to say, but then that. I mean, at some point, the growth will be such that if it continues for two, three, four, five years, it could be in Prince territory. Like, again, you don't want to slippery slope it too much, but this has to happen before that happens if it ever does, which I find completely uh, tectonic to imagine. Yeah, I just continue to be fascinated by the fact that there hasn't been a widespread panic among publishers and booksellers about how they're going to compete with audiobooks in the way mm. that there was that like years long sky is falling sense about um, what ebooks were going to do. And I know that the margins are better on ebooks than they are on mm-hmm. are, are better on audiobooks than they are on ebooks. And maybe it's as simple as that, that um, they're not worried about losing as much money if audiobooks start to compete with hardcovers. But it's really interesting to me that we just haven't seen that like hand wringing happen mm-hmm. anywhere. Um, very, this is very fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I we've talked about that. this before as sort of a meta narrative of why not why not the panic about this that we saw about right. ebooks. Maybe we got their panic out of our system, like that mm-hmm. was the locus for panic that was sort of generalized about digital technology on print, and it got localized there, and sort of it, it became a an anxiety well um, that sucked up the anxiety that maybe as the numbers are coming in and continue to grow should have been reserved or at least redirected at audiobooks. I wonder if there's also, I might be projecting here, but if other people feel like I do, that there's enough of a value add for audiobooks 
that the premium I pay for an audiobook feels justified somehow because it is a performance and it it does take different production than an ebook which again I know there's different things about distributing ebooks but come on it's the it's the words on the book mm-hmm. in a digital file whereas this is a different thing and that an audiobook doesn't feel like it competes with a print book on a bookshelf and I don't know if that's true but it doesn't feel like it does and I I think maybe it's just different enough yeah that it is the kind of threat, quote-unquote, to print books that you can't really make an argument against because it's just different. It's just not the same thing. Yeah, I hope that's true. And also, to be really clear, I'm glad there hasn't been a freak oh, out yes. about, yeah, yeah. Sure, <laughs> about I should audiobooks. Say that. Yeah. Um, I think we, yeah, we both are that like, this is a great evolution and for readers and audiobooks open up access in really important ways um, for readers with disabilities, especially yep. that like ha- just having it as an option as our an average reader in the world, a typical reader is great having access to so many more audiobooks and that are well produced and easy to get um, and use is really, really wonderful mm-hmm. for access reasons. Um, and I'm glad that wh- whatever the reason is that publishing did not panic about the rise of audiobooks, I'm, I'm glad I didn't want to live through a second one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, yeah. and, and to your point there about how being glad and the thing we're glad about is a, we don't like panics, but B, Audiobooks open up book time that print and ebooks are competing with each other yeah. for. Where audiobook is, time opens up a whole a whole another percentage of the hours available in a human's day where yeah. they could be consuming buying books that you're I don't think people are like, ah, oh, you know, I was gonna read that in print, but instead I'm gonna sit in my chair and put my headphones on. Right. I'm sure there are some people that do that, but I can't imagine it's representative of where yeah. people are listening to audiobooks. Think- and again, I'm projecting here. Last thing before we get out of here, I meant to put a follow-up at the top. This is, again, an artifact from the pre-recommendation show Interregnum about putting your Kindle into no Wi-Fi mode to hold on to your library book. And I was clutching my um, metaphorical pearls about, you know, you're just keeping that book longer and not making it available to someone else next in line. Apparently, a lot of people wrote in this. Thank you very much. exactly the kind of thing I want the feedback about is Mm -hmm. keeping it on your Kindle and turning your Wi-Fi off, the 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 book is still then available for the next person on the hold list. You you, you split the soul of the ebook into two, and it it's lives. It's like a horcrux. Yes, for a while. Yes, it lives on your Kindle, <laughs> and it also becomes available to the next person because what's being policed here is not the the bits and bytes and kilobytes, but the license. The license has moved from your Kindle and reverts, but the actual bits stay on there until you turn your Wi-Fi back on again. As far as I can tell. It doesn't impact the library or other library users. Does it violate the spirit of one reader per copy at a time? That's up to you, but I thought people out there might want to know. I still am not going to do it. I don't like this kind of thing. There was a nice long article in the Washington Post about digital library lending and stuff. Um, Maybe we'll get to that next time, but there's a lot of things going on and some interesting data uh, about what people are doing to get around holds and you know some of the other talk about you know how we're going to manage this new digital world we find library materials in. So um, maybe we'll lead off next week with that. Rebecca, we'll talk to you next time. Have a good one. <laughs>